Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in Political Science, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm Susan Lee Bell at St. Joseph's University, and today I'm delighted to welcome Michael A. Olivas to discuss his new book, Perchance to Dream, A Legal and Political History of the Dream Act and DACA, published by NYU Press in 2020. Michael Olivas is the Emeritus William B. Bates Distinguished Chair in Law at the University of Houston. His 16 books include many works on undocumented children and higher education law. His new and timely book provides a comprehensive history of DACA, insights into why the legislative version stalled at the federal level, and suggestions on how DACA might be protected. Welcome to the podcast, Michael. Thank you very much, Susan. I'm delighted to be here. Uh, In the preface to the book, uh, Bill Richardson writes of you that you were in immigration law before it was a field and that you are, I quote him, not only one of our nation's leading experts in immigration law and history, but also one of the first. So I'd like to tell you, I'd like you to tell us a little bit about how you became interested in immigration law, and how this became your focus in your writing. Well, it's interesting because uh, about half the time when you interview for a position, they ask you what you want to teach and you give them A, B, and C. Um, For me, uh, I actually was recruited at the University of Houston Law Center to uh, start up a higher education Program And so I had specialized in higher education law, which had been my dissertation topic as well. But one of my favorite classes in law school uh, at Georgetown was, uh, was immigration. And the person who taught that class, Charles Gordon, had written the major treatise on immigration and had represented uh, as general counsel the INS, what was then called the INS, for many years. Uh, I had also come to know the then current uh, INS director, Leonel Castillo, who was from Houston. And at the time, I hadn't uh, decided to go to Houston, but when I did, uh, his wife helped me get my uh, apartment. Uh, I became close friends. Uh, I ended up marrying a good friend of his uh, who was chair of the the, uh, board of the independent school district there. And so uh, all these things... Uh, sort of came together. I I cultivated entertainment law late in life, uh, turning a hobby into into a business. But um, on immigration, I'd say virtually any Mexican-American has an interest, in part because we may have family still in Mexico. My family's been in the United States for a number of years. And so uh, I know I have relatives in Mexico, but uh, I don't don't really know them. And and, uh, it's a lot of literally water under the bridge. So uh, it was a, both an intellectual and a personal interest, and I've been very lucky because uh, at the time, most law schools had only adjunct professors. When I say only, I mean did not have full-time professors. They had people who, who were practitioners who taught it on the side, as it did at the University of Houston. And so uh, it was unusual. I was one of the very first to teach, and when I retired at the time, even though I was only 69, I, uh, in fact, I was 68 when I retired. Uh, I uh, was the senior professor. I'd been teaching the longest. In fact, they didn't even have case books. Now, of course, it's become a completely different universe. There's case books and concordances and, and the like. Uh, in fact, there's competing case books. So uh, I was fortunate to be at the front end of that field and in higher ed law. There was no active case book at the time in that field. And the person who had written the original case book had been appointed to the federal bench. So he was no longer publishing the case book. So uh, I tried to convince others to do it, and I ended up plunging into that field. But had I gotten, uh, had things been slightly different, I might have written the casebook in this field. I'm very happy that I always had excellent casebook materials and 
And there's so many other cases that my students always had interesting material and almost daily I get things to clip or to respond to uh, in immigration, higher ed law, sometimes an overlap of those two, and then entertainment law. It's really a great world uh, for me. I played in it for a long time and I'm very happy. Uh, And we know that this book was published in 2020, but a lot has happened with DACA since then. And we'll devote some time in the podcast later so that you can weigh in on the recent Supreme Court decision and also how you see the the future for DACA, either under a second Trump administration or under a Biden administration. But let's back up and talk a little bit about the Development Relief and Education for Alien Minors Act, which most of us know as uh, the DREAM Act or DACA. Uh, It was originally introduced in the U.S. Senate back in 2001. And at the time, people thought it would be easy for it to go through. It never passed, um, and it has never come through the federal legislature. It's been something that's been done by executive order. Your book asks us to back up in order to understand why DACA uh, didn't happen, why the DREAM Act didn't happen at the legislative level. And so I was wondering if you could start us off with a little bit of background on how this came to be necessary, uh, given residency requirements for in-state tuition, and how it 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 and how different state legislatures came at this issue of undocumented minors who were trying to access higher education. I go to bed every night praying somebody's going to ask me that question, so I'm I'm delighted. I will say, however, because there's so many political scientists on here, that was that DACA was not an executive order. It was an act of prosecutorial discretion, which is uh, a different legal classification. And so just to save you from all these irate political scientists calling in saying it's not an executive order, I just want to correct that that small piece. Otherwise, like Rachel Maddow always asks people, did I say it right? You absolutely said it right. The the interesting thing about this particular case is that um, many of the original issues for students who were undocumented and by undocumented, I mean did not have uh, proper legal legal status in the United States. Sometimes that's unclear. Uh, it's not a straightforward determination where you can just sort of hold a thermometer up to their forehead and say, hey, he's documented, he's not. Uh, I had a client one time who had been born in the United States, but he didn't know that. His He was born out of wedlock and he was embarrassed and he was a professor and he, he asked me to help him become uh uh, legalized. And uh, I started looking and asked for some records. It turned out he was born in a LA hospital. And we found the records. There was his little feet in ink and it changed his life. He was, he grew up in Mexico. He was very Spanish dominant, uh, but he was very articulate and accomplished. And it turned out he was a lifelong birthright citizen. He just didn't know it. And so that kind of thing can happen. And so lawyering often is a detective work or an English parlor mystery where you know, it turns out Mr. Lopez did it in the uh, hospital with a with a knife. You know, I mean, it's it's a lot of uh, detective work and research, and th- that's one of the reasons I was attracted to this this field. It turns out that the early cases were about not about whether or not the students could actually be admitted into into school. Many of these students, because they had immigrant striving parents. Uh, who had brought them to the United States to make a life better for their children, even though it put them and the family at risk and they lived in the shadows, uh, these kids would 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 rise to the top. And in Houston one year, uh, with 16 public high schools in the city uh, that, had, that were in Mexican-American parts of town, uh, 12 of them had both, uh, excuse me, had either the salutatorian or the uh, salutatorian or the uh, valedictorian. These kids you know, were, were really quite phenomenal. And, and, of course, they spoke Spanish because they were, in, and it's not just Mexicans, of course, but where I lived in Houston, it was, it was predominantly Mexicans. Uh, they, they, the kids grew up speaking Spanish because they spoke to their parents and their grandparents and, and other family members. But um, they were also very fluent in English. And, of course, they were thrown immediately into English immersion classes. And, and this was a time uh, early on when uh, – being undocumented really sort of didn't matter. It's hard to tell with a classroom filled with Martinez's and Gonzalez's and Olivas's 
who's documented, who's not. And, and the school teachers uh, simply took it on as part of their task. But uh, when I moved to Houston in 1982, uh, it turned out that uh, the Supreme Court had just decided Plyler versus Doe. Uh, and the question there was whether or not the um, uh, institution, the, the state, um, could charge them tuition uh, for free public education. Well, it was supposed to be free public education. It turns out, of course, that they, the state uh, did, an, did enable uh, district school districts to charge tuition or to bar them entirely. Um, most of them didn't. They, they just uh, announced a tuition policy. And then the parents couldn't afford to send their kids to school, but the Supreme Court overruled that law in a in a uh, very important decision, uh, Plyler versus Doe, that had just been announced before I moved to Houston. And uh, one of the people involved in it had been Leonel Castillo, who I'd met over the years in D.C. when I went to law school, and he was he was there. And uh, that's considered widely the high high water mark for immigrant rights in the United States. Uh, it held they could also establish. Um, Domicile under traditional criteria, which means uh, you live uh, in a place that you consider to be your true permanent fixed abode, and uh, so the the decision uh, overturned the state's actions. And since that time, there's never never been uh, a, a, a challenge that's gone beyond, say, the appeals court level. But once all these kids were allowed to stay in school. Then the question becomes, what happens when Doe, the anonymous Mexican-Americans, wants to go to college? Because after all, attending even public schools, even even bad public schools, uh, as was the case in many of the neighborhoods in in Houston, uh, the ultimate is to to go to college. And many of these kids were rising to the top, taking honors classes, even in some cases transferring so they could have honors classes or better science labs and the like. And... uh, the state of Texas began uh, allowing them sort of because there were so few. And so community colleges allowed them and community colleges at the time didn't charge tuition so they could afford it. Um, and it was easy there. It was in district. Even if you were a document, if you lived in the, in the community college district, you could, you could do so. And my Michael, wife happened to be- let, me, let me interrupt you for just a second, because I think some of our listeners won't necessarily understand the impact of Plyler. So the U.S. Constitution doesn't mention the word education. It doesn't guarantee a public education. And and historically, education was something that was handled at the local or state level. But 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 Plyler uh, and our listeners are more familiar with Brown v. Board of Education, in which there there is some sort of sweeping language about the importance of education in terms of um, what was deprived of. Uh, for citizens who couldn't access the same education under segregation. So can, can you just tell us just a tiny little bit about what Plyler said about education and why education was seen by the court as so fundamental? Sure. And I'll remind your listeners, of course, that, uh, that my book, No Undocumented Child Left Behind, is available in fine bookstores everywhere. Soon to be a major motion picture featuring Jimmy Smith's as me because of the eerie resemblance that we have to each other. Well, now that I've clarified that, the interesting thing was at the time that the Texas legislature enacted this legislation, they didn't change the truancy laws. And so every student who was under the age of 16 who didn't have a medical reason, uh, and at the time there was no homeschooling kind of thing for religious uh, instruction, uh, they were obligated to be in school. And so uh, they were making uh, criminals out of these parents by by them not attending, if in fact they didn't attend. And as I say, there was very low enforcement at the time. It wasn't until this act was was written in 1977 that school districts actually started paying attention to the immigration status of these kids, particularly along the border, where in some instances, in fairness to the to the record, uh, parents lived in Mexico and would send their kids every morning uh, to the schools. And the schools didn't mind it for the most part, as long as there was a small number, because they were paid on a, a what's called an average daily headcount basis. So every child you have, you get a certain amount of money for, and the more kids you have, the more money you get. So uh, there, there was this kind of built-in uh, resistance uh, because uh, the school districts uh, often didn't uh, enforce truancy, but but they did uh, if they found kids on the streets or not attending school and the police found them hanging out in the street corner or 
shining shoes or something like that. So the, the real issue was that they were, on the one hand, um, required to be in school, and then on the other hand, were uh, uh, precluded from doing so by the tuition that was being charged. And by the way, in some school districts, it was $1,000. In 1982, that's a lot of money. I one time asked my students in class if any of them had $1,000 that they could uh, you know, access tomorrow, and, and only about three or four of them did, and they all said I put it on a credit card. So, <laughs> in other words, they built in this, this tension uh, between going to school and not going to school. And, of course, most of these kids would, would become uh, United States citizens eventually as the parents found means of legalizing themselves. And, and so um, the Supreme Court says in Plyler that um, this is simply residents uh, gone amok and decide, determined that uh, these children had the right to attend. Now, what that decision did, as generous as it was, uh, if they, they said there were innocent children, by the way, they used the term innocent children. They also used the term uh, undocumented for the first time. It's actually, as best I can tell, the first Supreme Court case that actually used the term undocumented. They also used illegal, but, but they also used undocumented. So that, that itself was, was important. And I think political scientists actually uh, track these kinds of things. So, uh, so you're very welcome for, for me doing your homework there. Uh, so the, the issue then became... Um, because these kids were innocent, someone has to be guilty. And so the, the decision, when you read it really carefully, reflects a certain amount of, I won't say derision, but uh, it, it demonizes parents. It was the parents who were the scofflaws, who, who committed the, the crime of bringing their children. The innocent children were, were brought in tow by the parents who had crossed the line. And this was at a time when, when uh, border enforcement wasn't as strong as it is today. It wasn't until several years later that major legislation really addressed this issue uh, with, it, with that famous uh, liberal uh, president, uh, Ronald Reagan, who enacted in 1986 the Immigration Reform and Control Act. So we, what you have is permission for these kids, not just to, this kind of inchoate uh, live and let live, but you had actual permission for these kids to attend public school. And in fact, the ongoing and never altered requirement that they do so. But they were going to college. They were going to college in small numbers. I began to meet a number of them in the community college, in part because my wife was president of the school board, which was a K-14 school board. It also had the community, they used a community college as part of it. So they would meet in both capacities. And they weren't charging tuition, but they wanted to become independent. And at the time, they decided they had to have a, a tuition base. And so some of these kids began being charged tuition when they hadn't been charged before. And once they attended community college, they would just pass on their academic records. No one was asking for passports or immigration papers and the like. And it was just assumed that they were citizens. So they would go to the University of Houston or transfer to UT or to AM or other schools as their record allowed them to do. And uh, it, was, it was a good time. It was an interim before everybody sort of discovered what was going on. And then changes in administration drew more attention to it. And... Um, there began to be a number of court cases, particularly in California, where you have a very tiered system. You've got the UC at the top, and then the Cal State in the middle, and then the community colleges. There's 100, now there's about 120 community colleges. But even then, there weren't many students going through. One study at that time, about 1975, uh, showed that there were only three undocumented students in the entire uh, uh, Cal State San Diego Institution. Well, that's on the border. You'd think there'd be more of them, and uh, uh, and there weren't. But the numbers began to rise after Plata versus Doe, and uh, these kids uh, started going to college, and as I say, uh, having the academic records to qualify them. And so they moved forward. And so there was at least, in, in my book, I record maybe 30 or so state cases, all of it at the state level because it was state law being interpreted. We ended up at one time where they could go to the University of California, they couldn't go to Cal State schools, and they couldn't go to the community college. So if they could just make it all the way to the top, um, they could they could uh, go to the university. They could go to Berkeley or something. Now the interesting thing was that at the time there was a big distinction between in-state and out-of-state. Texas at the time in 1982, for undergraduates charged four dollars an hour. That's sort of hard to believe. Uh, but out-of-state was 10x of whatever, by law, whatever in-state tuition was, it was 10 times for out-of-state tuition. And, and Texas was a major receiver state, not only undocumented 
uh, persons, but also people coming from other places because of oil and, and just the growth of the state and and, uh, and low, frankly, low tuition as well, and some excellent schools. So uh, all you had to do was be out of school for 12 months and apply. That would make you an in-state resident. And uh, I began serving on the University of Houston's uh, board that uh, determined these cases. We would read about 300 appeals a year for someone who wanted to become an in-state student and not pay the, the 10x penalty. And so I began thinking of this as a as a, a scholarly subject. I early on started interviewing people, started scouring state statutes and the like, and uh, um, published a couple of pieces where I got uh, some, some attention from uh, policymakers because now that there were uh, these kids were applying to schools across the country, particularly in the Southwest, but also in, in the Midwest and Chicago, where there were actually more Latinos in, in Illinois than are in my home state of New Mexico. And and uh, places with other Latino populations that weren't Mexican-American. Not so much in New York, because those are Puerto Ricans and they're, they're citizens, of course, but uh, many Cubans and, and others in uh, Florida and in the Southeast and so forth. So I began getting calls, not only from judges, clerks, and the like, but from uh, state officials in higher education, people at coordinating boards, and most importantly, at, at schools themselves on what they could do could they craft any kind of policy? And I discovered that there were, at the time, two federal laws uh, or two sections of federal law and immigration, Section 1621 and 1623, that said the undocumented, and they didn't use that term, they said people who are not lawful, who do not have lawful status uh, in the United States, meaning they weren't permanent residents, they weren't on a, on a visa, and they weren't citizens. Uh, so someone who's a dreamer, someone who's undocumented, that... Uh, they could attend, uh, they could receive public benefits such as tuition, but only if the state affirmatively passed uh, a uh, passed law. Now that in some states, tuition levels aren't governed by law. Uh, they're governed by, uh, let's say in New York or New Jersey and some other places by, by state boards. In some cases, such as Michigan, even the institutions themselves made the determination. So Eastern Michigan might have a different policy than down the road, uh, from Ypsilanti, you'd have the University of Michigan, and they'd have a different rule. And so there was this crazy quilt. And I began working with legislatures and helped draft eight state laws, state regulation, laws and regulations, uh, that uh, four of which were challenged in court and ended up winning every one of those cases, I'm proud to say. And uh, now we have about 30 states or so that allow people who are undocumented in. Now, today it's been complicated by, by documented students. That's, that's different, and I'll talk about that later uh, when we get to that part of the story. But at the time, I was before 2012, which is when DACA was, was enacted. So, yeah, and let me let me ask you just a little bit about those uh, what you're calling a crazy quilt, right? We have uh, from the Supreme Court this idea of Brandeis that these are going to be laboratories in which people will figure out these creative and ingenious things. But in the book, what you're showing is that at the state level, based on these incentives regarding tuition and these complicated rules about what establishes residence uh, and and uh, in order to access some of that tuition or ac uh, tuition benefits or to access university at all, that, that we have this, this, this uh, parallel set of politics playing out. And I was wondering if you just pull back the lens for a minute and let, uh, make some sort of general comments about partisanship. Is this all coming from Democrats or all coming from Republicans? Uh, you've said a little bit about geography but is this coming predominantly from one place or would we be surprised to see what a state like Massachusetts, for example, might be doing? So to just give us a sense before we move on to the national fight as to whether this state patchwork was um, was partisan and some just general general patterns. Well, it was interesting that uh, at first it wasn't entirely partisan. Uh, in fact, Massachusetts uh, uh, didn't have enabling statutes, and uh, uh, I forget the name of the the governor, a black guy. Uh, I'm just blanking on his name. He was a presidential candidate for about five minutes. Uh, uh, Deval Patrick uh, kept trying to enact it on his own authority. Couldn't get the legislature to do it. And as I said, in 1986, you've got this kind of moment of clarity where 
where President Reagan parts the waters and all of a sudden you've got not only uh, a resolution of this allowing both parents and children to become legalized under certain circumstances, uh, but now you had employer sanctions and it became both more and less partisan after that. The 1986 was probably the highlight in federal uh, comprehensive immigration reform. It gave us employer sanctions, which was a problem uh, almost immediately, but uh, it was a trade-off because millions of people ended up legalizing themselves. And uh, so my life became doing workshops and training my students to go out and do workshops on on how to become legalized. I remember uh, families snaking around the buildings with lawn bags filled with papers. Um, be, the term document is, is exactly the right word because you have to have some proof that you've been there for a certain period of time. They would do they would do checks uh, for uh, having not having a record, those kinds of things, and uh, so it became partisan about 1986 when, as I say, a conservative Republican president enacts legislation. And I thought by then uh, that that was that was pretty good. I mean, after all, I'd only been teaching by, at that time for four years. I thought, man, if this is happening early in my career, it could only get better. And of course, of course, it didn't. Almost immediately, there was the the thermodynamics of political science, where he had an equal and opposite reaction. So, in 1996, uh, when Clinton was in office, but was was weak, had been weakened uh, uh, sometimes by just the the nature, of the changing of the of the guard in Congress, but also by his, his personal uh, peccadilloes. Uh, they they ended up passing two very important uh, restriction of statutes, native statutes that, that trimmed back some of the, the ambiguity, uh, took away some discretion, made some things uh, criminalized in a way. And it's been probably no better since then. Uh, 19, so say pre-1996, between 86 and 96, you had really the highlight. We had uh, an increase in people who came out of the shadows. Uh, they, they turned out to be a very good Members of the community, uh, they their children, of course, uh, now became birthright citizens. Uh, so you, sometimes you'd have families before that that were mixed status. You'd have the, the older ones who came over with the parents who were out of status. And then the ones born in the United States, even of undocumented parents, had uh, birthright citizenship. And so uh, those kids uh, would more naturally be English fluent. They'd become the translators and negotiators for the families and the like. So you have partisanship at the national level, but at the state level, interestingly, these kids were so good and, and almost always uh, good kids. That is, they you know they knew that the, that if they, something happened to them, they lived with their parents, and, the, and the, the immigration police would would remove their parents. And so they they had this ethos of being very law abiding, uh, more so than than you know U.S. born citizens in many instances. I remember one time going to school and seeing this this crash, car crash, and no one was around, but it was still steaming. And of course, it had to be undocumented drivers because states still didn't allow them to have old licenses or to drive or, or to uh, own bank accounts. I mean, there are a lot of restrictions that, that occurred in, in real life. But in education, because of Plyler, these kids were sort of in a safe harbor, at least until they graduated. And while there were still some border skirmishes, kids who ran onto school districts, uh, uh, feet grounds, and they were arrested. Or in Albuquerque, there was sort of a really crazy case about some undocumented kids who were outside Del Norte High School, you know, a name in Spanish, uh, and they were arrested uh, for looking like they were undocumented. Whatever that looks like, you know, I defy the photographers who are listening now to tell me what someone who's undocumented looks like. Uh, so these kids tried to to uh, juke and and uh, you know stay out of uh, the limelight, they would drive very cautiously, uh, even though they couldn't. In some instances, could not have driver's licenses. They would take their parents around. The parents were continuing to work even with employer sanctions. So let, let's focus on the national politics. So you, you've brought us to the two bills passed in 1996, signed by Clinton, the Personal Responsibility and Work Opportunities Reconciliation Act and the Illegal Immigration Reform and Immigration Responsibility Act of 1996. Uh, as you say, they're passed in this very complicated national political atmosphere. Take us to 2001 when we have legislation 
that has introduced legislation that sounds very much like uh, what is being discussed now uh, and and give us a sense of of the extent to which this was supported by both parties, neither party, and and why it didn't turn into law. Yes. Um, I, I'm glad that you uh, spelled out what those were because I usually go uh, for, for both of those. So from not, the years 1996 until 2001 were very difficult for immigration practice because we had this nativist you know, sort of rollbacks and we thought things were going in the other direction. And then in 2001, um, where the very first state statute was enacted by Governor Perry, the successor to uh, to Governor Bush, where he said, if you've been here for three years, uh, you get in-state tuition. That, that actually was passed before 9-11. Uh, and, and the introduction of the, the original DREAM Act uh, was by, of all people, Senator Kennedy, Ted Kennedy, the liberal lion, uh, and Orrin Hatch, not so liberal a lion, from Utah. And it turns out through some... Uh, quirky, you know, meetings at one time, I found someone who had been on his staff and said, well, you know, he's Mormon and the Mormons do a lot of recruiting in Latin America and take a lot of missions there. And so the, the entire staff was, was for, uh, you know, Latinos, uh, even though of course Latinos aren't the only documented population, but that, that's sort of a back, interesting backstory. Don't you think to how he of all people would arise? And of course he was not, all for uh, comprehensive immigration reform, he was taking it sort of a step at a time, to his credit. But the, the fact that the two of them introduced it led me to take any number of bets, including dinners, you know, at NIMPAs in, in Houston, where, where I lost the bet saying, man, with these two guys, it's just a matter of time. Well, yeah, I guess that's still technically true. It is still a matter of time. And both the House and the Senate have enacted versions, but never in the same Congress. And so uh, we just haven't... The, 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 the moons were, and here my hands are crossing each other in different directions. They, they had a little eclipse there, but never enough to, to be enacted into law. And, uh, and then during the, uh, President Bush's first administration, before 9-11, there was some movement there um, to, to try and reconcile. He had been meeting with the president of Mexico. And, and in fact, there was a, a vote uh, in, in uh, his second term where uh, it was very, very close. It passed the House and the Senate needed five votes. But it turns out um, that uh, McCain was running for, uh, Senator McCain was running for the presidency. So he was sort of out of commission on this. He didn't want to appear uh, too supportive. Uh, Senator Boxer had fires in the state. She wasn't able to be there. Um, a couple of others didn't show. Uh, and uh, I'm forgetting the name of the the senator from uh, uh, Pennsylvania who was both a Republican and a Democrat and then switched fields. Specter, Senator Specter, said, well, I'm for this, but it's going to ruin the opportunity for uh, comprehensive immigration reform if we do this. Well, I, so so he voted no, and that that was the game. They didn't have enough votes to, to enact it. And the White House sort of pushed him a little bit on that and, said, well, we need conference immigration reform, not doing this piecemeal. As, as of course, most of your listeners would know, doing something uh, early on can be built on. It, it actually gets you the low-hanging fruit. So these kids, uh, even then, were very widely supported by all polls. Uh, even today, uh, GOP polls show that 60% of, of, of GOP voters uh, support not, not comprehensive immigration reform, but DREAMer Act. So the these, these kids uh, always had this, the support, both from the Supreme Court and then the sympathy of the various states. And, and now at the federal level, it rolled up that way. But it died because they said, well, the DREAM Act would rule out comprehensive immigration reform, whereas I thought it would show how it's possible to do and you could build on it. And of course, once these kids became 21, then they could petition for their parents anyway. So under immigration law, longstanding immigration law. So uh, it was it was an opportunity lost and still hasn't been taken up. Uh, President uh, Trump, of course, has blown hot and cold on this, saying he loves the he loves the dreamers, and then he turns around and says they're all bad hombres, and 
you know, he just he talks out of both sides of his mouth on that. And because he's not giving the signal, a, a positive signal, the the uh, uh, pick, the promise act that had been passed by the House still sitting on uh, Senator McConnell's desk waiting for a wink and a nod from the president to move forward. And, and it hasn't. Um, now, if, if it turns out, just to flash forward for a moment, if DACA were actually canceled on, on President Trump's watch, there might be some movement there. That's the only sort of good thing that could come from that. Um, but uh, there's been no movement. It, uh, and these kids now, of course, 800,000 of them have some opportunities under DACA. But because it was cut off uh, by the Trump administration, there's a building number of kids who are ineligible or who would have been eligible had it not been ruled uh, uh, as, as dead, dead on arrival with the Trump administration. So uh, I, I'd be glad to move to that direction because that's actually the sort of the next step in this saga. Uh, there continue to be uh, cases, but by now about 30 states have enacted in-state tuition for undocumented persons. And almost all of them except New Mexico look like this. If you come to high school here and attend high school and graduate and spend three years here and you don't have any serious misdemeanors, then you can uh, get in-state tuition. Well, that's that's the victory that we were seeking all those years. As I said, I was an expert in four different cases uh, trying to do this piece by piece. But uh, the problem with state benefits is that they're not transferable. They're not fungible. You can't carry them with you from one state to another. So if I go to high school and qualify in California and then try to go to school uh, in Texas, I can't meet the Texas requirements <laughs> except by waiting out 12 months, which I, I could do. But a lot of these students want, want right. to go sooner than that. So before we turn to taking this to the present, the recent Supreme Court ruling in um, uh, uh Department of Home Defense versus uh, Regents of University of California. And also, uh, I would like to also ask you about the F-1 visa announcement by ICE this this week. Uh, sure. But before we do that, let me just ask you a general question about the press. So as I read the book, uh, there were moments in which you seemed to f- feel that at both the state and federal level, progress wasn't made in a sense because the press never fully, in your words, sussed the legislation. They didn't understand what was at stake. They didn't understand these incredibly complicated terms, the difference between domicile and residence. So in general, how has the press fared in reporting this? And, and have, they, have they helped? Have they hurt? I was very glad for the opportunity to resurrect the term sussed, by the way, which is a term I've always loved, but never got to use it in a book. So I finally got that out of my chest. There are a lot of moving parts, and there are, of course, and I'll, I'll take D.C. off the, the table just for a moment and Puerto Rico off and Guam and so forth off the table. Uh, 50 different states that had essentially 50 different sets of residence requirements. And so, uh, and some of them were not only uh, a crazy quilt, but some of them just didn't make legal sense and deserved challenge just on the, for, for the, the poor draftsmanship. So, a lot of them would use the term intention or uh, other terms, uh, your true permanent fixed abode, which are terms of domicile, which is actually different than what they really meant, which was duration. Even though none of them use the term duration, what they all meant was you have to be in the state for 12 months, cut all ties with other jurisdictions, commit yourself, and then you become an in-state resident. And it, and no state had more than an 18 months waiting requirement. Um, and these all these new uh, uh, Dreamer kids had even longer than that because they had three years. And that came about. And here, all your listeners will get some insider baseball information. Uh, I met with some representatives from uh, first Governor Bush's uh, team. And then when he became president, uh, uh, his successor, uh, Governor Perry. And uh, they said, well, these kids are going to all come to, to here just to go to college. And I said, that's just not the way it works. There's no evidence that that's the pull factor. The pull factors actually work for their parents. And they come along. And because of truancy laws, they're in school. And because the parents come here for the kids, they want them to be educated. And Plyler versus Doe allows that. So I was always able to point to Plyler as the background. But I And they wanted to say, well, how about 10 years? That just seems reasonable. I said, well, no, the, the longest one 
right now for citizens is only 18 months. How about in Texas, most public schools have sophomore, junior, senior year, three years. How about if they have three years? That's still twice, three times as much as, as for a citizen or someone from Louisiana or some other state. And they said, okay, that seems reasonable. And honestly, at that meeting in 2001, they bought that argument. And I think it was a fair argument, by the way. Uh, the only state I was able to convince to go with 12 months uh, was New Mexico, because I knew Bill Richardson. My father had been his campaign manager. He was a good personal friend. And by then, uh, things had changed. Uh, and, and so uh, there, there was a growing uh, counter movement among the states to become actually more accessible, in part because of the success of the kids who'd done so. So that was testimony. And in part because, again, with falling white birth rates and enrollments, many states were actually losing young kids. The United States acts as if having immigration is harmful, but in fact, we're one of the few developed countries where we improve the normal pyramid, which is having many more old people than young. Because once you become a citizen, once you become permanent, you end up having fewer kids uh, as a rule. The, the, the more secure you are, the fewer kids you have. And so uh, we were lucky to be replenished by these wonderfully talented kids who, who not only brought other skills, but other languages, and they were well-behaved because of, of immigrant uh, resilience studies right. and, and so forth with the strivers and and so they were the perfect kinds of kids that you'd want, and they were achieving. They just had to pay these inordinate amounts of money to go to college, and they were always ineligible for federal assistance. They couldn't get right. And and it, and it, sorry, not to interrupt, but at some level, it's a it's a it's not an ethical requirement to be better than the average citizen in order to access any sort of services. So setting up the the requirement to be better than to be exemplary as a citizen also places a burden. Um, Michael, I want to direct you to some of the things that have happened since this book was published. And I also want to talk a little bit about audience because many of the listeners are trying to figure out whether this is a book that they need to read for their research or they need to assign to their students uh, or other and lots of other and lots of other possible uses. Um, so, so let me first direct you to the to the recent court case. Uh, in this book, you highlight the importance of words and the meaning of very particular terms. Uh, in some ways, you sensitized me to be listening even more carefully to the way uh, the press is reporting what is coming out of the Supreme Court and what has come out of ICE this week. So let's start with the Supreme Court. What for you was uh, the impact of their recent decision saying that President Trump uh, could not end the program given the way he had approached it and the reason that he had given? What What do you see as uh, the, the importance of this case? Well, here I would urge your readers to not only buy my book and, of course, any book that you've produced, uh, but also the book, The Gang That Can't, Couldn't Shoot Straight, because if there is any apt description of the Trump administration with regard to not only his approach to law generally, but immigration in particular, where he you know, routinely violates law and, and doesn't always get caught on it and makes it up as he goes along and imprisons kids and, and doesn't accord people their, their asylum rights and the like. Uh, in addition to all of that, which made it very difficult to teach immigration for the last couple of years, it was I was teaching kids the tools with a, with a toolbox that kept opening and closing. Uh, but, but in fact, there are, there are rules. And uh, as it happens, Chief Justice Roberts is, is the most attuned to the application of the uh, Administrative Procedure Act, which has been around for 70 plus years, which says that if you're going to undertake a, a formal uh, action, uh, as, as opposed to just, we'll take this case versus that case. But if you're going to try and, and unravel uh, a program that exists, especially one that has, in his words, had substantial reliance. After all, 800,000 kids were enrolled in DACA uh, and more would have been had it not been uh, the spigot turned off uh, uh, years ago. Uh, they came to rely upon it and they just sort of rolled over and they, in bed and said, well, it's illegal. And, and Jeff Sessions had started this and then all the various DHS 
acting secretaries. We've been through more acting people there than than a minor league you know, baseball team. Uh, said it's illegal, and the president uh, didn't have the discretion and the authority to do that. Now, this from a person, by the way, whose administration declares discretionary acts all the time. And and the interesting thing was that President Obama, for before he enacted this program in, in 2012, actually was was called by some of my colleagues, and I suspect some of yours, as a deporter in chief. He'd been so successful in trying to remove people, his low hanging fruit, people who were here with criminal acts on their record or or uh, who were open and notorious or who were well well known to the to the authorities and they were he removed 400,000 a year for each of his terms that's an enormous amount of people being repatriated to their countries and he was doing that to uh, try and gen up support for comprehensive immigration reform or at least a dream act and uh I have colleagues who called him and students called him the deporter in chief. And I refused to engage in that name calling because I knew what he was really trying to do. And he tried some projects, some uh, experimental programs, one in Denver and another one, I think in uh, North Carolina, where they offered um, low enforcement priority to people like students. Very few dreamers had actually, you know, when they were caught for some reason, like sitting in uh, Senator McCain's office and and had felony charges uh, of which they were convicted. Uh, they they weren't removed. They were they were allowed to stay here. And it was it was only when a paper outed them or something that or they became multiple offenders uh, or took up crime, which very few of them did, that, that they were actually removed. And so there was always a low priority on enforcement. And you have to. It's just like, are we gonna? Go after jaywalkers, or are we going to go after speeders, or are we going to go out, you know pick a pick a, a crime that's a, a a low level crime with with small stakes, uh, but that can have big consequences when you announce you can enforce it. Well, that's what they were doing with with DACA, where they said we're we're just not going to use this anymore as a means of deportation. So they gave these kids, in effect, three different tools. One is a social security number, which believe it or not, actually. It renders you eligible for a variety of benefits. They also had work authorization, so-called EAD, employment authorization documents, which allowed them to work. And that, of course, is the key because a lot of these kids had to work and couldn't find work while they're going to college. Uh, it did not give them eligibility for Title IV, but it gave them what's called lawful presence. And that's as distinct from lawful status. Lawful status would have meant that they moved along the pathway to citizenship. They didn't get that. So it was really a, a buying of time. It was a safe harbor that could be renewed for, you know, for as long as the program continued for two years at a time. And then it was such a success. Almost immediately it paid for itself. Immediately these, these kids started working, becoming licensed, you know, graduating from college, um, becoming doctors. In fact, the Supreme Court, while I was still considering DACA, received a, 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 a report that a number of law professors and Others have put together showing how over 20,000 of the dreamers of the of documented students uh, were involved in healthcare. So they were actually essential workers at the time. Uh, there's, there's now a dream bar where you have either undocumented or documented lawyers uh, because state statutes didn't ever anticipate there could be 800,000 of these kids presenting credentials. And so they, they poured into teaching fields and others. And many states believe it or not, didn't have immigration eligibility. They would have terms and listen to three of these and see if you remember them, social security numbers, the ability to work, or if you had lawful presence. If you had any of those, you could become a a lawyer, a doctor, a school counselor, uh, et cetera. And so DACA actually had provided this long-term benefit and these kids, you know, lined up to to take advantage of that. And so um, when the Trump administration said they were going to do away with it, they just rolled over in bed and decided it was it was uh, illegal. Uh, and they said so. And that was their line. Now, the interesting thing is, and I'm on the Mexican-American Legal Defense Fund board, so I see these cases up close. One of the Maldiff cases that we had won just prior was a census case where the Census Bureau decided, for what I believe to be partisan reasons, to start asking immigration questions. They never asked that before. In fact, they had sort of interagency rules that when they were doing their their uh, citizen, you know, when they were doing their uh, 
screening for uh, Census Bureau that they would they would ask that question, but they would not give the information to any other agency, which was breached, of course, by the Trump administration. Right. So, so Michael, said, if I understand you correctly, and if I understand the book correctly, you're you're saying that the Supreme Court, the recent Supreme Court case really doesn't change anything fundamentally or substantially because it relied on the Administrative Procedures Act. It allows the president to come back and elaborate, specious or not, a set of justifications for ending the act. And he can do so. And then, again, if I understand the thesis of the book correctly, it will fall back to the state's. So in the absence of national legislation, which is what we have been relying upon, this will be punted back to the states. No, Am it, I under- it, it really won't because it doesn't determine in-state residents. So it's very, it's very bifurcated here. It doesn't have anything to do with any state benefit. It has to do with three features plus advanced parole, which means the ability to leave the country and return, uh, that are all federal. You know, states don't give you permission to work. They don't give you social security numbers. They don't give you lawful presence. They don't give you the ability to leave the country and enter. Those are all purely quintessentially federal obligations and responsibilities. But what he couldn't have done was done it properly. He could have shut it down properly. And there's rules for that. Notice and comment. They had not done those in the Census Bureau case either, which is why that case becomes important. And they had misrepresented it. They had said, it, uh, we're doing this for, to make a, a better accountability or something. When in fact, uh, through an interesting backstory that I won't bore you with, it's, maybe it'll be my next book. Uh, it turns out they're, they're, they knew that it was a lie and they were doing it for partisan reasons. They just papered it. And, just, and Chief Justice Roberts, who wrote that case also, holds that they did not follow the APA and that they had lied in it, misrepresented. Now, the only one who sussed that out was Justice Sotomayor. She actually, in this case, not only, uh, uh, of course, uh, agrees with with Chief Justice's um, majority opinion, but she writes her own dissent or her own own, uh, uh, remarks saying, this was done under false pretenses because you look at what candidate Trump said where we're all bad hombres, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, it was clearly done for nativist and racist reasons. Now, no one else joined her in that, but she, in my view, is so great at really getting to the bottom of perfidy, maybe because she grew up in New York and so she's seen the president you know, operate in all these years in, in murky territory, but she calls him out on that. And she says, this is exactly like the like the the case with the census where there was misrepresentation here they just didn't do it right but he could have done it right there's no doubt and the right. question no, is no, whether or not he has enough time to do so before he leaves office and i agree with you that her concurrence which is what it was was the only one willing to take on whether the intent was racist and it is fascinating that no other member of the court joined that concurrence as well as signing the majority opinion by Justice Roberts. Let, let me, since we're almost out of time, let me ask you a little bit about what happened this week, which is that U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement, generally known as ICE, announced that for fall 2020, students from abroad with F-1 visas will have to take their classes in person. And that means that Students who are at the many universities that have decided to go online will be facing very, very difficult choices. Do you have any thoughts on that announcement and the responses that are currently being made by universities? Yes. I hope that someday we can very soon could have another podcast on this because it's, uh, it's also a lot of moving parts on it. Um, the, the real issue here is a return to the status quo ante until last April, I think it was when they suspended the the rules. After all, so many schools in in midstream in the semester or the term switched to online instruction, uh, including international students, of course. And it's not just Fs, but it's M1s as well. M1s are students coming here for vocational schools, which fill a lot of, or language instruction, they fill a lot of the programs as well. So so students who are on, uh, non-immigrants who are on student visas, let's say, just to cover the waterfront, uh, have never been allowed to come to the United States if they were taking entirely online courses. It makes no sense for someone in 
Slovenia to come to the United States if they're going to go to a, uh, a trade school that has all its classes online. Why would they be? They could do that from Slovenia. They don't have to come to the United States. And because there's viewed to be X number of spots filled up by students who want to come who are very qualified for regular programs, which can have a mix or a hybrid of online or other kinds of classes as well, but they can't take all of them that way. And a number of schools, um, as you know, including Harvard Law School, uh, are, are going to uh, uh, have entirely online programs. That means they will not be able to allow any international students on these visas to, to attend. Uh, the problem isn't that, that that rule was unfair, because I actually thought it was fair. I thought it was exploitative of, of uh, schools to do this. Um, and it was mostly trade school. So it, it really was sort of consumer protection to help students who didn't, who were going to take all their classes online anyway from having to, to come to the United States and do it when they could do it from there and get, still get the same credit. So it, it, I always thought it was fair. It was fairly applied too. And everybody lived with it. It's just that because of this emergency, they switched gears and said, we'll have an exception. And everybody sort of assumed that would last as long as there was this uncertainty in the waters being roiled by the pandemic. But it turns out that here it is a month before some schools are starting anyway, they say no. Now you try and you know come from Slovenia to the United States right now uh, on on uh, 12 months, um, well, excuse me, on, on a, a month notice, uh, you won't know what you can do when you get here. Some schools are, are clearly, in my view, going to start online or stop, start with hybrid, find out they can't do it because these kids just will not conform to the kind of, you know, distancing rules that are necessary. It's clear now from their beach and, and uh, bar behavior, they won't do that. And they can't do it. How are you going to do it in a dormitory and so forth? So I think the rules are going to change, but then it'll be too late. I thought they should have uh, given let, let it roll out for another year and a half, but that would have meant con- the, the this administration conceding that it doesn't have control of this pandemic. But it's part of a piece they, they have the Muslim ban, which affects a lot of students. They have the rules about Chinese students not being members of the Communist Party. They have tried to do away with op- optional practical training, which allows immigrants to, uh, these the students to, to uh, work in internships after they graduate. They've cut back on the H programs, which mean uh, you can't hire uh, them even if they're uh, graduates of the, of the U.S. schools. It's all part of an anti-immigrant uh, tapestry that that is the signature of this pro of this administration it has been since the beginning with bad hombres um, as i sign off with you all i'll say is that i am the administration's worst fear i'm a mexican with a law license who can write and people knowing about this is important and that's why i wrote the book i tried to elevate out of the shadows these important cases that had occurred that most people didn't know about unless they knew one of these kids these kids are our glory. They're our treasure. We've had them since Play versus Dove. We've invested in them. They, they have no more contact with their home countries. This is their home country. And we need to make a place for them. We can't deport 800,000 of these dreamers. That's absurd. And I think the only result, if Trump wins and does away properly, finally learns uh, how to use the, the APA, uh, th- there may be some backlash. Uh, but I'd sure hate to to make book on that um, because I don't see a veto-proof Senate, uh, even if it turns majority Democrat. Uh, think that the, but, but I will say this. I studied to be a Catholic priest for eight years, and I believe anybody can be saved. Turned out I was much better at afflicting the comfortable than I ever was at comforting the afflicted. I believe we're going to prevail. We'll not really survive. We will prevail on this because the arc of history is our country is a beacon to the rest of the world. And we have squandered that for four years. These kids will go elsewhere. Canada, Australia, other places will take them in a heartbeat and they'll make it easy and we will lose them. And this is the greatest gift we have is to allow people to come here, go to school, learn our system, learn that part of being in that system is resistance. So I thank you very much for the opportunity. I hope that your authors will, excuse me, your listeners, if they have questions, will will, uh, drop me a note, uh, correct the record. And I will end on this uh, thought. ABBA does not belong in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. That's another thing that that I'm, I'm trying to get Biden's views on that. That's going to determine how I vote. Thank you very much.
So thank you, Michael, for taking the time to discuss the book with us. Uh, for the audience, the this is this is a book that is wide ranging. It has almost half of the book is notes, appendages, bibliography. It's exceptionally carefully done so that on the one hand it is accessible to the general reader. On the other hand, it is uh, a phenomenal research uh, tool. The book is Perchance to Dream, A Legal and Political History of the Dream Act and DACA by <clears throat> Michael Olivas, and it's published by NYU Press in 2020. Thank you so much for being my guest today, Michael. Thank you, Susan. I was very pleased to do so.